The Boldly Now Show, burning desire, big ideas, bold action. Hello and welcome to The Boldly Now Show. This is Michael Sean Conaway, and I have the great pleasure today to have a conversation about the Generative Futures Initiative. The Generative Futures Initiative is an organization that's the parent organization to Boldly Now and is dedicated to teaching generative futurism and to generating a 100 and 1,000 year vision for a thriving humanity. Today on the show, I have with me Pablo Jenkins and Doug Fisher, founding members of the Generative Future Initiative, and Rachel Morrison, host of the Boldly Now show. Pablo, to get this started, let's talk a little bit about what do we mean when we say generative futures and what is generative futurism? I think two things on, on, the, on the name are useful. Futures, because there's not a single directed uh, sense of control on, on what the future can be. But when we start to look at what to do among many challenges, I think we can do what happens mostly in life, which is like our brain has uh, information from the past, our companies have information from the past, data, forecasting, tools. Not that they're not helpful, but they're almost by their own structure going to give us a lot of the same results that we're trying to overcome. So for that, it often seems like a little crazy to, to think over a hundred years out or thousands of years out, but we all have had ancestors that made gestures that have allowed us to arrive here. So it's, first of all, we, we are the present of long-term kind of actions and thinking. And the idea of being generative to me comes from the sense of almost a tapping into a deeper source of creativity that goes beyond a single individual or a single lifetime and to really sense transgenerationally where you cannot even kind of take just the future and, and push it a little further or take a nightmare and tweak a little bit. And, and it really means kind of having almost a bigger canvas in which to create possibilities, almost a mandala-like of the future from an us that then gives us in the present both a possibility to relate in new ways and also allows us to investigate things that are already happening. So it's not just pure science fiction, even though I think science fiction has some interesting things to invite us to do, but it allows us to start identifying uh, spaces that are already showing that kind of possibilities into the future. And then rather than having to change the system from within the system, one can also find evidence of that future emergence in the present from a deeper kind of listening by doing it from this generative long-term approach. Yeah, and I could add a few things. Um, and one of the things also that just to add as a framework is, is I think I can speak for uh, Pablo, Michael, Sean, and Rachel, and myself, that, that we really want you to come away with something useful out of this, not merely, not mere, yes, some new ideas, definitely, but something you can actually put into action for yourself. And I think with regard to futurism, just in generally, you might consider all of us are futurists in a way. Because <laughs> we're all, we all are thinking about the future. We're all, you know, whether or not how generative we are is another thing, but we're all thinking about the future quite a bit. And, uh, and often the way we think about the future, now the future, it's probably not a stretch to consider the future lives in our imagination. You know, it's not, it's not a physical thing like, like a phone or something like that. You know, you can't go to the grocery store and get a pound of the future, but we're, we're, often and very often thinking about the future. Uh, but a lot, as, and, and riding on something Pablo said, a lot of the way we imagine the future 
is an extension of the past. And you might say there's a, um, Michael Sean, there's a term you used about the, that, the past-based future. What was the term you used? Predictive future. Yeah, yeah, so there's a predictive future which we typically live into. And, and then a lot of that, a lot of how that impacts us today is we do things to, you know, you know tweak towards that. You know, so, so more, better, different. And if you look at, and again, consistent with what Pablo was saying, the, the current things we're dealing with, you might say uh, we're trying to, you know, the, the way we, as a predictive future, see them, we'll try and fix them in some way. We'll try and do stuff, which we should do. So nothing wrong with that. But to cause a major shift, to bring about a new future, takes, and this is where the part of generative comes in, is to actually generate a future discontinuous from the predictive future. A future, and that's why Pablo said looking 100 years out, 1,000 years out, because 100 years out, we can begin to imagine that the problems of today have been handled. So, so if you're, we're looking 100 years out to a future, then it's like, okay, well, what would we like it to be like? What would be all the great things we'd like to have in that future? You know, what's really important to us that we'd like to have fulfilled in that future that gives a different imagining of the future. And again, uh, there's a lot in what Pablo said, but in, in echoing back to what it, one thing he said, it's like that imagining of the future, that imagining of the generated future has an impact on us today and has us take different actions today. And, and you might consider anything any major advances we've had, either societally, technology, any advances we've had have come about because someone in some group of people have started imagining a generated future, a generative future beyond what was predictable. And in my view, this is something that if, if more and more of us begin engaging in this kind of generative futurism, that's what's needed to cause the shift that we want to cause. Right, Doug. Most of what we call futurism in this world is predictive futurism. And most predictive futurists won't predict more than a two or three year future. Because if they're wrong, they're not very good predictive futurists, right? So I have to gamble on circumstances going in a certain direction. And then if I'm right, the press will write about me and say, oh, in 2020, Michael Sean Conaway predicted X, Y, and Z. So then my, my actual success as a, as a predictive future is upon predicting futures that, that, are, that happen. But they don't happen because I cause them to happen. They just happen because I, I, I read the tea leaves of the current circumstances well enough to talk about the future. Now, most of us, and I have, I have in my past uh, been a predictive futures, most of us who do that kind of work and think in those times of terms, are, we're just looking at trend analysis. We're just looking at analysis of how things are going, maybe symptom analysis and polling. And, and honestly, most of the conclusions that predictive, predictive futurists comes to are pretty obvious. Predictive futures, futurists rarely predict a future that's not an obvious conclusion from where we are. We don't predict in January that in, in April, most of the world will be in sequestration and lockdown. We don't predict that because it's not connected to the current circumstances in, in any way. Thus, a predictive futurist is necessarily blind to the future. I'll say that again. A predictive futurist is necessarily blind to the, futurist, to the future. 
and that's all we, we all are. We are all blind to the future. It, it, it's not here. We can't put our hands on it. So what, what could we do about the future if we wanted to alter it? Uh, and that's where generative futurism comes in. It's where imagination comes in. It's where uh, storytellers and um, visionaries of all t types have placed their bets on a future that's not yet realized. And we do that to create a destination, uh, a very specific place to head towards, uh, and usually a, a why to head towards it. In our case, in the Generative Futures Initiative, we're talking about a thriving for humanity with a thriving planet included. Uh, so pretty basically um, desirable future for every human being on the planet, and I, I would imagine for most of the other species that live here as well. So we put something like that out here, and then we begin to describe it. Well, what would it look like if humans and the planet were thriving simultaneously? And in the describing of it, or as Doug might say, in the imagining of it, we actually get information that comes back from the future to us today about how to behave or how to orient ourselves or what the gaps are like, oh, wow, we don't know how to handle that problem. We should start to solve for that problem. So I say a generative future orients us in current time to what we need to be doing and what we, how we need to be behaving. And unlike predictive futurism, our job as generative futurists, which I really believe every human being has, has that in their makeup and DNA, our job as of generative futurists is to bring about the future we're describing, to cause it, to be a participant in having that future being realized. What Michael Sean described about the visionaries who brought about new things, the thing I, I want to make sure, those of you who are listening and watching, that you know you, you have that too. Right. You're capable of that too. And it's the more and more of us that are acting inside of this generative futurism, imagining the future, bringing it about, that's what's going to cause the shift we want to make. I just want to add that everyone, each one of us has that capability. So I, I'd like to add a little piece is that you don't start out as a visionary you usually start out as a misfit. And <laughs> the radical idea that you're bringing back from a place that doesn't exist yet is so off and not coherent with the reality that is in front of you. Um, not just misfit, but even um, dissonant, right? Like there, there's a strong dissonance with what it is that you're bringing into the space. And then eventually some people will start to kind of um, agree with you. And then like maybe a thought leadership and then visionary perspective. But when you actually reach a level of a tipping scale here, you actually become a way shower because you were a way seer. And that I think is at the leading edge for all of us the uh, generative future that we are striving towards, which was Michael Sean's question, was that we are leaning into a world that works for everybody, where at the highest level of uh, creation, we are choosing to see all of life and all of existence as something that is not separate from us. And so not only is it to be supremely revered and cultivated and nurtured into its best possible potential, but to realize that it, whatever it is, reaching its best possible potential is actually I. 
reaching my best possible potential and working in unison to have that happen. And the only way to do that, I find for me anyway, is to just try things on. I love the, the, the grounding and kind of looking at how we move from the imagination of the future into our action today. You know, how do we har harvest or bring into to the world some of those insights? How do we take our passion and, and uh, ideas and then get them into action in the world? Um, now, Pablo, you've been you've been doing a lot of action around uh, you know regenerative agriculture, regenerative uh, development, investing into those worlds. And you know, I remember with some of our early conversations about what's the leap from regeneration to generation. And uh, you know, I think for for um, for the Generative Futures Initiative, you've really been holding the pole of like, well, what what can the planet look like, or how can we live in in uh, harmony with that, or in alignment with that, in a in a in the future, talk to us a little bit about you know what 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 is going to be required of us to to create a thriving planet. Yeah, that comes very close to my heart at multiple levels. Um, having both grown up in Costa Rica and um, and my father passed away last week, the youngest of his siblings. Uh, so I've been reflecting on many things that are connected. One is legacy, purpose, longevity. And my father and uncle were the pioneers creating actually the Urban Development Institute in Costa Rica and very close to the people who eliminated the army. The president who eliminated the army 70 years ago, his daughter, Cristiana Figueres, has worked a lot on what this decade means for the planet after the Paris Agreement. And the core insight I feel very strongly and I felt for a long time is, first of all, there can be no longevity, no, much, no matter how much you biohack yourself, if the planet is collapsing. We're seeing this now, like, you know, in a planet that cannot breathe, that's burning in the Amazon or Australia or anywhere, or, or that the ecosystems are falling apart. I think what's generative is what is a trustworthy place to have a creative confidence, to go from misfit to visionary. And I think the, the expanding circle of concern for us makes a lot of sense to be planetary. Still in the age of my parents, um, they were coming from World War II and Costa Rica was an early country that was mostly rural. It was a lot of how to create thriving urban places where people could live well. And even there, I think that the circle was a little small. I think cities are very much, but if one really went deeper, and I think that was at the core, maybe not of only the family business, but of the, the intention, regenerative places, and Costa Rica did manage to do this, like uh, about a third of the country got cut down to do farming of very low intensity, for example, cattle. But then it wasn't just like, okay, keep what's left and try to not destroy more, as if you just want to like make a nightmare less bad. It was a sense of ecotourism and blue zones and longevity and planting in a permaculture way could actually come together. And in 20 years, the country more than doubled tropical forest coverage, you know, 56% of the country is now covered from 21% after the destruction. So clearly the standard of keeping 0% destruction is not very, like, it's not very exciting, you know, <laughs> just be like, let's destroy less, let's kill less. But in that time, the population doubled and GDP tripled. So even by economic terms, it was a good idea to regenerate. Now, that's at a small little country and family level. Why, why is the planet really, I think, the right scope and the generative future the right place? I think because there, the aliveness of ourselves 
the thriving of our societies and humanity and the planet are so obvious the same. There is no such thing as a successful society in like a failed and broken ecosystem and economy. It's, it's very sad to see some of our neighbors, like the, you see Venezuela now, that when I was growing up, it was always supposed to be like so richly endowed by oil reserves, by national forests and stuff, but that doesn't make any sense to try to do these false compartments. So as I look in the context of also my work in regenerative spaces, where, where the way of living, the way of actually also learning from nature, you know, Rachel spoke about the imaginal cells. I see the, the, the butterflies in her wall. And, and, and you see the, the miracle of this transformation. And a few billion years of evolution have also given us insights that by living and regenerating with nature, we're in a very deep way, not alone. Not only have not other misfits that become visionaries helped us show paths that are generative, nature itself has that quality at its very core. So, so I take on the legacy of my, of, of my past generation that was about creating urban spaces for people to thrive as an invitation of more our generation of how can the planet's wisdom and a boldness of really finding what's most trustworthy in us. And it's almost never what we can control. Right now, it's very obvious to many people that few people really control what's about to happen. It's a deeper sphere of possibility that allows to really, with nature, bring, I would say, things that are, this is my closest, shortest definition, things that are life-affirming. And that's where generation and regeneration come together. And where you cannot be life-affirming by destroying what seems to be separate from you, which is obviously itself the mirage. You know, like that, that's, that's the wrong perspective. And, and also even separated in time, as if we and our ancestors had somehow gotten separated. And um, so I'm very excited to see this decade be both very pivotal. We, we could be destroying a lot of life, and, or also it could be really the ultimate invitation to imagining from the future someone coming and seeing this recording, not just random social media or random results, and see like, what were people discussing when this shift in what was possible and interconnectedness was happening? Now, not theoretical, like then the people shift where they live. I'm moving to live in a blue zone by the coast in regeneration. So myself, I'm doing the, those shifts. Um, and I think this is an invitation that many people are feeling maybe from the corner of the eye. And what makes generative more possible is to get a trustworthy sort of early tribe in the planet that invites that to not be a side thing, but almost butterfly-like, a sense of like, let's fully merge into this place of creation. And that's where I see the planet being able to provide food, water, soil, not as separate problems, as really life-affirming co-creation that regenerate what's been destroyed, but actually generate new possibilities. And that, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's for sure possible. And nature has a lot of wisdom for that. Let me just add something to what Pablo said, because it, it, and, and it's a little bit of a meta conversation, but one of the things that was so great, Pablo, in here what you're saying is like the passion you have for it. It so communicates, it so comes across. And again, bringing it back to those of you listening, watching, that, that that's, you know, for each of us, there are things that we're passionate about. There are things that are like, like so important to us. 
And, and that's, for me, also another key part of generative futurism. It's not merely about some future. Yes, it is about a future for humanity beyond our lifetimes. But it's also about impacting us today. And in a way in which each of us gets to express our burning desire, our passion, and, and contribute that to a thriving humanity. And that's, again, available for all of us. So Pablo, um, you talked about how, how many years did it go from 21% to, to 51%? How many years did that take? Just over two decades, like 23 years. 23 years. And um, so you have to start, I just want to just tease something apart here. So the people that were making the decisions to, um, to take the actions not to cut down more forest and, and make, you know, do cattle farming or ha having to do this and to, to do, you know, to do take actions to protect rainforest or protect land to actually do that. Uh, they weren't expecting that that would make an impact in a year or six months or a quarter, right? No. And they did not even make it planning that that would make ecotourism happen. They right. knew there's something else, but exactly right. Like, and they did not even have power for all of those other governments. They had to put an idea that was powerful enough that other people want to keep up rather than be thrown back and forth in a democracy. So they came up with an idea to, you know, and they probably didn't have the term to re regenerate the land and regenerate yep. the forest. And that idea is still functioning and working in Costa Rica today. We're, we're, you're still, I mean, obviously there's lots of benefit from it now, but uh, what would you say the, like, what is the trajectory of that idea and where, you know, like, where is that heading for Costa Rica just a little bit? And the, and the reason I'm teasing this out, Pablo, is I'm, I want to really make a, a distinction for our audience that, you know, a lot of trends of this, a lot of, of, of generative futurism is about transgenerationalism. It's not about what's going to happen in my lifetime or even maybe my kid's lifetime or their kid's lifetime. It's like, how do I understand, how do I, how do I see that I can be the impulse for something coming into being that's going to outlast, outlast me and that it may not even fruit or it may not even flower uh, for, for generations into the future. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll be succinct, but I think this has a lot of useful tools that I've seen in my life that I think apply for the world. So when the national parks were created and the army was eliminated in the case of Costa Rica, I mean, I think I'm of the planet. They did not know the effects. They just imagined a place where national parks would let nature preserve things. They just, they just imagined that nature had a wisdom in like the biodiversity, but there was not even the word regeneration. There was not the word ecotourism. This was just after World War II. And the sense of not having an army seemed like relatively bold. Even now it seems bold, like in a very dangerous zone. But so what was the vision? And, and it's, again, my uncle was part of that vision with my father. My father was much older and I, my uncle was born in 1926. So I know this firsthand. They felt that there was a way of interconnecting and thriving that was about well-being, healthcare and education being more important than defending from like your current, so to speak, enemies. And that nature would give you some of the ideas when it kept coming back. So just not cutting down was not that engaging. So, so it was partly like they needed something to make up like longer term, uh, I would say beacons to go towards. But I know first and they didn't have any of the solutions. And I'll just connect to another personal thing that to me has been powerful. And, and Michael Shen, I've shared this with you a bit. Uh, this, this friend and, and person that I admire a lot uh, that, that we spoke with uh, from, from France, but has worked a lot in Africa, has made me think a lot about what Africa's potential is also in this decade. Like the cities have not been built like in Latin America. We met in the context of this expedition to Greenland. 
and we saw like a 70 kilometer glacier like collapse with water that was 50,000 years old. So like one doesn't even need to be like very theoretical. So like you're like 50,000 years ago that water got and the, and, the, and the air was there and somehow it's collapsing at the same time. Uh, sensing what Africa can be right now, it's really a place of imagination. Like it's, it's not like it's all done. There's a, in many parts of the world, it's not done, but like even the cities, when I go to Houston, it's harder for me to imagine a Houston. It's totally possible, but it's sometimes harder to imagine it with no cars, with just like permaculture gardens. So some, sometimes we're just in this crux by, by looking deeper rather than getting overwhelmed. And I mean deeper in time. We imagine like other people are going to show up and do part of the, of the generating. And I think that's what also happened with nature. People thought, okay, 30 years from now, people will find what a country that's rather than 15% covered by tropical forests, but half of the country, over half, they will find more to do. And this was always in the sense of what I did sense from like the possibility, which is like, you're putting something that is both bold and exciting, but also you know other people will build on it. And now that I think what we can learn from Costa Rica or Bhutan that, that connects to Africa, that, that makes you from the back of your mind feel like we're not just tweaking things, we're setting up stages that we may not see, are, are the people we've, whose grandchildren's grandchildren there may not even see, but the gesture stays there. And the gesture, I think this is why this time is so key, includes a kind of curiosity, like what more is possible? So I think the sense of possible is very different from the sense of predicting. Predicting, you almost want it to be right. You almost want to know. Possible invites a curiosity to say like, for sure don't know and will not know, know for a while. So even more, it's like, am I going to a place worth going? with values that feel life affirming. And I think that's what helped this stay on because a law is not that strong. Even who knows, capitalism and democracy are short experiments. When you look at 50,000 year water that this melts, like, like th those things were built and are falling apart from another set of waves that come in and out. So where do I find life affirming spaces? It's like in that kind of like passion and love and connection and that's generative, you know, like, like the passion is contagious even more than a virus <laughs> i just thought about um what it's like to create a generative future from the latin perspective like that <laughs> <laughs> really great to invite that level of passion and fun and um you know it's in some way innocence back into it where... i would say wonder yeah, and wonder. wonder. And I, I feel that when I dance tango with this tango teacher that she teaches tango with no steps, it's all improvisation. Every place, you never have then any mistakes, only new possibilities. And that really, when you do that in a hug of connection and, and communication, is so real. You know, so it goes from like theoretical, the future, possibility, wonder, to like each step is new possibility and wonder. Well, and maybe that's why you guys have like one of the very few blue zones that exist on the planet. Yes. I think that happened. And it was because people, they don't go to the gym more. They live longer years, but in the blue zone, I, I met with this guy, 104 years old that they had told me about. And he was not trying to like biohack himself or go to the gym or like do like, he's like, I didn't even go to the doctor. Like my doctor died 30 years ago. So like, you know, like, like he, 
he was talking about how, he, he, how like this 70 year old woman, like I think was flirting with him. He showed a garden that he was working on at 104. And he's like, just wait 10 years. It's going to look great in 10 years. So he, he spoke with the children in the elementary school. I don't want to be overly simplistic. I'm not saying it's all good. I'm saying, I'm, but this is real. Like what you say, like this, this Latin zone had some of that, like not, not more technology. And that's where I, now that I'm living there, I see the other wisdom, which is like, it's next to a place where turtles, the second place where turtles have come the most for the last thousands of years. Like for some sense, they're also coming to this beach. And it's amazing when you see them go decades and thousands of years uh, and, and, and thousands of kilometers come back to this little place and a place where aliveness comes from walking naturally, comes from a sense of purpose, comes from community intergenerationally. And these things, the wisdom has been there. Now, what else could we do from there is my question. Not, not to celebrate lifetime achievement awards to long living people, because that's not even what they're trying to do. They're, they, they feel they want to do gestures from over 100, that's one of the five places with most centenarians, that blue zone, to what we wanted to map deeply with GFI, the futurists, it's like, where are there other places that are thriving around the planet? Like, look into parts of Africa, look into parts of India and say like, you know, these, these are not just places that need help, they, they are without the obvious instruments of the system of modernism, thriving with their environment. And it could be at a small scale, maybe not the whole country is thriving or not everyone. But then you say how to, from a wonder, sense of wonder, what's working and how can we increase the probability that more of that generative energy is present in the planet rather than just spend a lot of time complaining why the system is messed up. I want to point out something here that I think is really important. And we're talking about thriving zones and how do we support thriving zones on the planet. We also really feel that there's this hyper-locality about these things. Um, uh, we're not looking for a scalable solution. We don't want the entire planet to be a monoculture, to have a single way of doing things. We're actually looking for uh, ways to understand and see and envision very specific local solutions for very specific local people and cultures. And that's a, that's a, uh, that's a very different approach than the you know, past-based patriarchal, we're going to, here's, here's the, you know, here's the way to do life on the planet. Uh, we believe that, that, that every local area, that the land has knowledge and information, that the people there have knowledge and information. And what we can really do collectively is understand that, see how, is there, are there principles and ideas behind that? Or maybe there's, we can bring people from one place to another to see something and that sparks something for their imagination, for their locality. Um, we do believe that there are some very, very important systematic global um, things that need to happen in terms of protecting, you know, human life, uh, uh, you know, protecting people from, from uh, uh, exploitation uh, and, and also for, for, the, um, for the planet, you know, pr protecting the, the shared ecosystems, the oceans, the air, um, the, the biodiversity on the planet. Uh, and so I really, I, I get so excited when I hear you talk, uh, Pablo, because one of the things that, that's important about the future, especially the imagined or generated future, is that we have find some evidence that it can work today. We actually, like, look over there, there's the future, it's showing up. It may be a, a hundred year future for some places or even other places, it's a 200 year future for that place. But here it is, here's a little piece, a little spark, a little ember of what the future could be like. And so... Uh, you know, part of imagination is not just seeing inside, it's actually looking out into the world and seeing the same thing being reflected back to you. 
Michael Chen, let me just add one thing you said about the evidence, because I think uh, another thing for all of us is when we see evidence of things working, to share it. Right. You know, that there's a lot each of us can do. And one thing is like sharing what is happening, what is working, that, that really helps, because it can help, as you pointed to, sparks the imagination of others. Like if Pablo is sharing about what's happening in Costa Rica, I begin to think, oh, what might happen what could I, how's it, you know, I, what could I imagine here in Denver that might be relevant to that? You know, so it helps spark each other's imagination and there's the collective uplifting that comes from that. Uh, yeah, visioning is a, is a community experience. Um, even when we envision ourselves, we share, we tend to share our visions immediately. Or when you know, like you wake up from a, an interesting or strange dream, you want first thing you want to do is to share that dream. Like, well, I had this dream, and you'll never guess what happened in it, right? I think we're, I think maybe part of our storytelling DNA as human beings comes from this this experience of of wanting to share what we see, and so yeah, so part of generative futurism is also storytelling and being able to share your imagination in different ways. Share the good news if you have good news. Share solutions if you have good if you have solutions, uh, and and you know ultimately you know and this is the, the the story boldly now get into action to to make those things to make those things happen on the planet to actually see some progress maybe not in our lifetime and I want to just deepen that distinction a little bit we we really kind of get that human beings tend to when they design things design things. Uh, for their own benefit or for their family's benefit or their tribe's benefit or maybe their company's benefit or design things for the benefit of of a nation um that and and when i mean benefit i mean benefit over so i, I everybody's gonna have a lot but my family's gonna have a little bit more and it's it's not um it's not out of a bad sentiment i think at, at the root of our humanness we want to that which we hold important that we care for we want to protect and and so it's hard to design for the entire planet and all the species on the planet in a protecting a small part of the planet mentality. And so if we can get out beyond our lifetime or maybe beyond our children's and grandchildren's lifetime, then we have a place to, that we're free to invent something without needing to protect something at the same time. We actually get liberated to just freely invent for all beings. And the... Uh, and and I, we talk about in, in uh, at the Generative Futures Initiative that 100 years is a, a pretty good amount of time. It's really hard to imagine more than 100 years. It, you may your your children still may be you know still may be around their grandchildren, but you can't really imagine designing something to benefit them. And Pablo once said, "Yeah, I'm going to have to go out a little bit further than that because you know maybe Harvard's going to erect a, a statue of me, and that statue has to crumble to the ground so that I don't even get any of the." the benefit of the work that I'm doing. And I want to just kind of get really clear about that. I want to design so that I don't get the benefit of what I'm doing, that I'm doing the benefit for the planet and for people who have not even been imagined yet. And that participating in that has a, um, has a depth of soul to me that, that I don't know. It, it, it satisfies a longing to really truly be a contribution in a profound way in me. And I just have to imagine that if we can tune into that for ourselves uh, individually to live our lives for that future, um, 
yeah, I don't think there's anything more moving for me in the planet. Yeah, Michael, Sean, I think that taps into, I don't know how to say it, like something really important for all of us. If we really look like, like actually contributing to something that has that kind of impact, it's really beyond ourselves. And, and that, again, that makes a difference for us today. It gives me a different today. It gives me a different me today when I take on something like that, which is, I think, an important part of this whole notion of generative futurism. It's not merely about uh, a future that we're divorced from. We, we may not see it, but we're definitely connecting. It might say embodying it now. Yeah. And I, I want to point one thing because it, I think it can give off in the impression that worrying about more things is going to overwhelm you because, and, and Bob Thurman often makes this example, like you take this scenario, like the size of yourself and you're like, did I look smart? Like, do I have enough money? Like, like, like my, our, our, is my house cool enough? And already you're like, I'm even struggling with that. How can I worry about all people? But, but actually most people that, that care about others realize that loving others actually makes the little silly things of the ego, not, not go away, but take perspective. And I feel the same with time. And I used to feel earlier in my life that I had to run more to do more. And, and uh, a good mentor helped me get the perspective also of nature. You know, like, like a tree often lives hundreds, thousands of years, doesn't even need to run around do much. And from where it is, it has a very life-affirming function by, by being present to life, so to speak, even with a level of consciousness lower than our human possibilities. So, so I think my invitation is, is to go from curiosity rather than feel like, oh, I'm going to have to take on more tasks and get them right. It's more like, what am I rooted from that's already holding me? The way the open earth holds kind of a, all of us in a volcano, always already there. And then you just keep almost like the tree, just, just doing that generative place because just imagine in how many ways it can be used. So it both has the sense of like, not even a statue or a book about you or like your grandchildren, grandchildren celebrating you. But uh, because my father died of Alzheimer's, I also got the process of letting him go through dementia, which is both very hard, but gave me this insight. I, for a while, he could only sense music. He, we could not even talk about the future or plans or did he feel proud of me? He could, and then, like maybe a hug, a loving way of just being present there. But still, it was a kind of gesture. Like, I mean, there, this is the thing that it's not everything we create has to come from like more planning, doing, and data. It, it is, of course, useful, the tools. But what's generative, I think it's the, the opening even more space. And, and, and if you think the people who came hundreds of years before us and thousands that have passed, wisdom of the earth and wisdom of of courage and uh, and overcoming keeping this i think that i would close with this like going beyond cynicism that's what also the future really gives you because you could be like oh, i'm gonna do this but then like are they gonna even like value it like then it's not even a, it's a, that's not even the point it's just like it's this worth putting the life into that bolder ocean and i feel the Issues we have at this time in the planet require some of that. Otherwise, they become very easily overwhelming to any single person that has very little control at the core over a short period of time. But it's really a part of a, like, if so much has happened until now, how much more is possible is what I 
I feel most alive to. Uh, Rachel, why don't you why don't you give us a little bit on that? I, I just want to pull you in here because I know you have a lot to a lot of depth in like thinking about being in relationship to to these kinds of, of generative ideas. So when we look at becoming a portal for creation to flow through that not only accesses all life on this planet and lends a voice to those who do not have one, including the water, the trees, the land masses, the animals, the children, so on and so forth, as well as the future that we're choosing to orient ourselves to, and then create some sort of multidimensional or transgenerational synthesis of what all that means into this present moment, which is why the concept of boldly now is such an imperative. Mixing that with the concept of hyper-localization, it goes well beyond the extension of our hyper-local communities. But to actually go into a deeper level of knowing that hyper-localization is a foundational key point that creates all of the biodiversity that has existed since the beginning of time that actually creates a long-standing impulse in the world. Yes, great. I want to just give Doug a chance to kind of wrap up and any last thoughts you might have uh, to bring us home. Well, one of, the, one of the last things again, because for me, it's always coming back down to you. Like what, what, are, what are you, what are we, what, are, what am I as an individual going to do? And um, <clears throat> one of the things, uh, echoing something Pablo said earlier about, and I may not say it exactly as how you said it, Pablo, but, but not waiting to have everything figured out before we take action. You know, it's, it's a, even if we have a spark of an idea, take action, because it's in the action that the, you might say the future will reveal itself to us. You know, Michael Sean pointed out earlier, we'll get information from the future that we wouldn't get otherwise. And, you know, I, I've kind of determined, figured for myself or resolved myself, I might never have the big idea that produces a thriving humanity, you know, there, and, and, you know, those of us listening, we might not have the big idea, but, but it doesn't, I keep remembering a, a quote from Mother Teresa, we can do no great things, we can only do small things with great love. And that, that taking action with our desire for the future, with our desire for a thriving humanity, and seeing what unfolds, and keeping imagining that 100-year future that, that for us is what we would like to see, and even a small action today makes a big difference 100 years out. And so for me, it's us, each of us, taking whatever actions we can on a daily basis in that way. I want to emphasize what Doug just said. Generate a future and invest in that future over time. Not just your investment of time and energy and love, care, but your community. And then pass that on. You know, like look at how we can create a human chain to a 100 and 1,000 year future. And know that you're connected through that human chain to a thriving future for humanity and a thriving future for planet. Uh, that's all for Boldly Now. Rachel, we'll turn it back over to you. Uh, thank you all who have been listening and thank you all uh, who've been on the call in the participants area. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You in the App Store, Google Play, or online at bold.ly forward slash Y-O-U. Boldly You is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire, big ideas, and bold action, generating a future for a thriving humanity.